baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We need, and we haven't done this yet, to centralize our public health system. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. We have done exactly what needed to be done, which is provide and give an effective vaccine. The key for gun safety reform advocates is to think about this in the long term. These times when change happen, often brief, so you want to get as much accomplished as possible. This is KCBS In-Depth. We are living through an age of dramatic advancements in medical technology, with the near constant introduction of new therapies, treatments, and cures. But today's guest is pointing out that the history of medical innovation is marked with many tragic missteps, and the costs are often measured out in human lives. Welcome to KCBS In Depth. I'm Keith Menconi, and today on the program, we're going to be unpacking some of that history and also hear what it has to say about the latest high-tech medical advancement we're all coming to terms with right now, the COVID-19 vaccines. For that conversation, we're gonna welcome on now Paul Offit. He is a professor of vaccinology and pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and the author of the new book, You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccination, The Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. Paul Offit, welcome to KCBS In Depth. Thank you, it's my pleasure. So that word risky in the subtitle is really an important word in this book because uh, really it's a book about the importance of confronting and coming to terms with medical risk. Uh, And even as you lay out all these medical missteps that have taken place through history, uh, you also write that these tragedies, quote, shouldn't cause people to lose faith in science. So again, really embracing that risk. And and that conclusion might seem a little bit counterintuitive to some of us. So if you could, let's start on that point. What are many of us perhaps getting wrong about medical risks and the right way to think about it? Right. I think think if you ask people, do you think we're going to know more about science and medicine 100 years from now than we know now? I think everybody would say yes. But when it comes to their disease, their problem, uh, they would like to believe we know everything we need to know right now, which is never true. So when we move forward with a particular innovation, it's never a matter of, do you know everything? It's, do you think you know enough? I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. I'm on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee. You know, when we consider something like, do we want to move forward on a vaccine for 12 to 15-year-olds? That, that study involved 2,300 children. Half got the vaccine, half got a placebo. And so you're trying to make a decision then about whether or not you would recommend this vaccine then for that age group, knowing that those 2,300 children are just a small fraction of who is about to receive that vaccine, because it's going to be millions and then ultimately tens of millions of children who could receive that vaccine. And is that 2,300 child study enough? Do we know enough? When do we know enough? And that's it's a uh, Hard thing to do. And I so what I do in the book is I go through the nine major medical advances that have caused us to live 30 years longer than we did 100 years ago and um, try and sort of sometimes stop along the way as we, we learn as uh, on each of these innovations. Would you get it now? 
Would you get it now? Would you get it now, knowing that we now knowing that we're soon to learn more things? And because we're we're always sort of in a learning curve. I think that people would argue, you know what? Let me wait till the learning curve's over, then I'll get that medical innovation. But the learning curve really is almost never over. Yeah, and uh, just to let listeners know what they're going to be in store for as we talk through some of these medical advancements and their history. There, there really are some pretty shocking examples of missteps, uh, sometimes fairly understandable. Sometimes, you you know, you really feel like people should have known better. They should have been more careful. But uh, once again, you know, you are a, an expert on the history or excuse me, the just the vaccine development in general. And uh, you really look at this history and come to the conclusion that these risks oftentimes have been worth it. Uh, and and really, uh, the bets are worth taking. Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at sort of the, the, there's a cancer chemotherapy story that I talk about in here with, that involves Sidney Farber. I mean, Sidney Farber of the Dana-Farber Cancer Center in Boston is probably one of the most famous, if not the most famous sort of uh, cancer specialist in the world. And and what he did very early in his career was he there was a, a group of children who had uh, lymph, leukemia, acute lymphocytic leukemia, and he he gave them full, essentially a folic acid agonist, something that 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 was was essentially a nutrient. He, he gave them a nutrient in the hopes that that would mean that um, it would decrease the ability of those cancer cells to reproduce themselves. In fact, the opposite was true. He basically took a disease that were, where children usually didn't live more than a few months. He took a disease that was universally fatal and actually made it worse by giving this, this folic acid agonist. And what he ended up learning from that is he should have done exactly the opposite. He should have given something that actually worked against folic acid, this growth nutrient. And with that, we, he, we came up with a, a drug, aminopterin, which we now essentially the modern day equivalent is methotrexate, um, which works extremely well. I, I think what, what uh, the interesting thing uh, as part of that story to me was the first person really to receive that folic acid antagonist, an anti-folic acid drug, was Babe Ruth. Yeah, so there's all these strange uh, coincidences in this history, and it's all uh, an awful lot closer to us than we would like to think. This isn't the deep, dark, distant past uh, in a lot of these stories. It's a really quite recent history uh, that folks that we know have likely uh, lived through. But let's actually go to an example that is a little bit further in the past. I found the example of blood transfusions to be quite informative, and that goes all the way back to the 17th century with the very first blood transfusions that uh, I think would... Uh, hearing those stories would make uh, many of us uh, turn pale ourselves. Uh, really not exactly scientific procedures when they first started out. Yeah, I think that's an understatement. Um, so when we transfuse blood into people in the 1600s, we use farm animals, sheep, goats, calves. Um, and so the way I try and tell that story is, okay, so would you get the blood transfusion now? So I think if you, you ask people, you know, would you get the blood transfusion in the 1600s, assuming that you needed a blood transfusion, would you use these, these farm animals, knowing that we, there was still much we didn't know? And, and so then what happens, you sort of fast forward to the early 1900s, when we actually learn about blood typing, A, B, O, blood typing. Okay, well, would you get, would you get a blood transfusion now? And then you learn that there's still we still had to learn about RH typing. So if you're O positive, it's the positive of of uh, of that uh, blood type. Okay, so now we know about RH blood typing. Would you get a blood transfusion now? Okay, so now realize that that hepatitis B virus 
um, has entered the blood supply and in fact caused probably one of the biggest single source uh, epidemics in our history with people who were inadvertently transfused with blood that contained hepatitis B because we didn't know about it in the 1940s, 1950s. We finally developed a test for it in the 1970s so we could test for hepatitis B. So knew you, you knew you were getting hepatitis B virus, clean blood. Okay, so would you get a vaccine now in the late 1970s? Then what happens in the, in the early 1980s is AIDS comes into the United States and HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, enters the blood supply. Okay, so now we get a, a test for HIV. Okay, would you get a blood transfusion now? Knowing that, which is where we are basically now, knowing there are, there are a number of viruses we don't test for, knowing that there are a number of viruses we don't know about yet that no doubt will at some point enter the blood supply. So it's always a matter of risk. And so you could argue, okay, well, maybe, maybe I should be one of the first people to try artificial blood which is a technology in its infancy. So this is, uh, this is uh, the way that I think we need to think about this, which is we always at some level learn as we go. All right, just going to reintroduce you real quick. Uh, for anybody just joining us, this is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today on the program, we're looking at the long and risky history of medical innovation with Paul Offit. He's a professor of vaccinology and pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He just wrote a new book, You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccination the long and risky history of medical innovation. And so another example of that perhaps would be the innovations that we've had in terms of heart transplants. And uh, that was originally a very risky procedure as it was first performed in the late 1960s. It's gotten less risky over time. And now we've gotten to the point where we're on the cusp of perhaps being able to introduce genetically modified pig hearts and uh, offer that to folks. And uh, just uh, perhaps that is extends some of the questions that you were putting forward a second ago, the question of would you accept this now? Uh, in the case of uh, pig hearts, uh, the other half of that question is how dire is your current medical situation? What what is it that you are trying to treat? Right. I think the the, the heart transplant story is interesting in that it started with with the first human to human heart transplant in the 1960s done by a South African surgeon named Christian Barnard. He was really probably the most famous doctor out there. I mean, he was on the cover of every major magazine. And the patient that he did in whom he transplanted planted that uh, human heart lived 18 days. And but nonetheless, it was birthed to many, many different uh, heart transplant centers throughout the world. And, and you know, hundreds of people uh, got heart transplants. And then eventually, when you realize that people weren't living very long, you know, days, weeks, you know, center after center after sun, center shut its doors until a Time magazine cover read whatever happened to heart transplants. And then we discovered things we needed to discover, medicines that could suppress your ability to reject your heart transplant without really hurting you, uh, your ability to fight infections. You know, being able to diagnose early evidence of rejection of heart transplants. And so now the average heart transplant recipient lives 15 years, and so it's a much easier decision. But suppose you're on the heart transplant waiting list. There's about 4,000 people on the heart transplant waiting list, about 1,300 of whom will die while waiting. So you don't know. You may be one of those people who dies while waiting. Do you want to be one of the first to try um, a pig's heart? Because we now can essentially clone pigs. Um, so, so you can make a, put into someone a pig's heart that you are much, much less likely to reject because of the way it's been genetically modified. You want to be one of the first to try that, knowing that invariably we learn as we go. 
Speaking once again to author Paul Offit, who, uh, as he mentioned earlier, sits on the FDA's COVID-19 vaccine advisory panel. He also co-invented the rotavirus vaccine. So uh, let's go to the topic of vaccines, because you also write in, I think, what is perhaps one of the most uh, shocking uh, medical blunders uh, that you uh, that you profile is the rollout of the polio vaccine and uh, how that led to many people actually getting injected with live polio virus. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, there were two stories in the polio vaccine um, saga that I thought were particularly interesting. One, one was that. When Jonas Stalk um, made his polio vaccine, he made it by taking poliovirus, growing it up in cell culture, purifying the virus, and inactivating it with a chemical. Um, that announcement was made in, uh, in April 1955 that his vaccine worked. Um, it took about two and a half hours to license the vaccine. It takes a little longer to get that, uh, that uh, licensure today, about 10 months on average. <laughs> but, um, and so five companies stepped forward to make it. And it was hailed as a major breakthrough. One company, Cutter Laboratories of Berkeley, California, made it badly. They failed to fully inactivate poliovirus in that vaccine. As a consequence, inadvertently, 120,000 children were inoculated with live, fully virulent poliovirus. About 40,000 developed short-lived paralysis, so-called abortive polio. 164 were permanently paralyzed for the rest of their life, and 10 were killed. I would argue it was probably the worst biological disaster in this country's history and gave birth to um, what has been now, I think, a very successful vaccine regulation program. But it really had to suffer that to, to uh, have happened. And there was one other story in that that's probably the reason I wrote the book, uh, just because it was so emotional for me. I mean, I, as a five-year-old, was in a polio ward for about six mm. weeks. So uh, that that image of polio is very vivid for me. But but when Jonas Salk did that 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 trial, when he made his vaccine, he, pretty, he did it by sort of taking the virus, killing it, and then he tested it in about 700 children in the Pittsburgh area. And what he found was that it was effective and that it induced high levels of virus neutralizing antibodies and it was safe. And he said to his wife, Donna, I've got it. Eureka, I've got it. And then what proceeded was the largest trial of a medical product in history that broke his heart. He didn't want to do that trial. He didn't want to see whether or not the vaccine was was effective by comparing those who got the vaccine with those who didn't. He really couldn't conscience a placebo group for a polio vaccine, because he knew that every year polio would come into this, this would would uh, would thrive in this country over the summer months, causing twenty to thirty thousand children to be paralyzed and about fifteen hundred to die. Nonetheless, the trial was done. So four hundred and twenty thousand children got Salk's vaccine. Two hundred thousand received placebo, salt water. And when it was over, the person who headed that trial, Thomas Francis, stood at the podium at Rackham Hall at the University of Michigan and said those three famous words: safe potent and effective. Three words that were on the headline of every newspaper in this country. Department stores stopped when that announcement was made. Church bells rang out. Synagogues held special prayer meetings. And and the Voice of America carried that story over into Europe. So how did he know it was effective? How did Thomas Francis know that vaccine was effective? He knew it because 16 children died from polio in that study, all in the placebo group. He knew it because 36 children were paralyzed in that study, 34 in the placebo group. These were first and second graders. I was a first and second grader in the 1950s. But for the flip of a coin, 
these children could have lived long, productive lives. And I think that's why that was always so emotional to me. There, there's, there is always a human story, a human price paid for this. And I think while we were celebrating the success of that vaccine, we should have recognized the price that was paid for it. And today, when I see children come into our hospital, Children's Hospital Philadelphia, who are volunteering for, for a vaccine trial for the five to 11 year old age group, or now for the six month to, to four year old age group. I, I just think we have to remember these gentle heroes who are part of this learning curve. Yeah, and I wanna talk next about that learning curve because you know we've been detailing some of these tragic uh, incidents and oversights. And I think another important thing that you highlight in this book is the reaction that we have to those tragedies can sometimes cause their own problems because as you suggest, uh, there's no such thing as eliminating risk. There's just choosing risk. And uh, in the wake of uh, the the polio vaccine mishap and, and other mishaps, uh, many people drew the conclusion that this was too risky of a medical intervention. It uh, fell out of popularity, or at least, you know, in a relative sense, fewer people were using it. And the flip side of that was more people were getting sick. And you document that in a, a number of different episodes. Right. So, so when the cutter incident happened, when children got polio from the polio vaccine, um, it, it, it took a while for the polio program to get back online and because it took a while to figure out what the problem was. But when the problem was figured out and, and polio vaccine was back online, there were still many people who didn't trust it. And so then they risked getting polio or there was a tragedy associated with um, tetanus uh, with, I'm sorry, that was caused by tetanus associated with diphtheria anatoxin. So the way that that product was made is you took animals, you inoculated them with diphtheria toxin, which is a sort of a protein. They would then make antibodies against that toxin, so-called diphtheria anatoxin, and then the horse's serum would be harvested, and then that served as a way of treating children with diphtheria in in what was largely the pre-antibiotic era. Well, the problem was one of the, the horses from whom that was made got tetanus, and so there was tetanus toxin in his bloodstream, and when, when th- that serum contained tetanus toxin, and 13 children in St. Louis died from getting that diphtheria anisera. And, and so there were people then that said, you know what, I'm not going to get diphtheria anisera. In Chicago, the, the rates of diphtheria anisera dramatically dropped, and the rates of death from diphtheria dramatically increased. So there were never risk-free choices, just choices to take different risks. And the question is then, when did we figure it out? When did we figure out what the problem is? All right. Uh, Going to reintroduce you one more time. Uh, once again, you are listening to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi, and we're speaking with Paul Offit with the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He's talking about his new book, You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccination, The Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. So let's bring things back, as you just did a moment ago, to uh, the current moment and talk about what this history all has to say about the COVID-19 vaccine. Obviously, as a an expert on vaccines and vaccine development, you are no stranger to the phenomena of vaccine hesitancy. And we have seen an awful lot of that since the rollout of the many COVID-19 vaccines. And, and I, I, I think that your discussion of risk would... Uh, probably be surprising to a lot of the folks that are have been weighing the risks of taking the vaccine versus not taking the vaccine. How do you think that this history should inform those are those who are still struggling with that decision? Right. So I guess I would divide it into two parts. If if you look at polls that were done in last September, October, before the vaccine came out, when people were asked the question, "Would you get a COVID nineteen vaccine?" about thirty percent said yes, but seventy percent said no. 
That's fair. Uh, they were skeptics. They wanted to see the data. If you'd asked me that question then, I would have said no. And I think everybody who sits around the table at the vaccine advisory committee for the FDA is a skeptic and would, would say what we all would say was, let's see the data. So then the vaccines rolled out by the end of December. And, you know, hundreds of people were vaccinated. Thousands of people were vaccinated. You know, hundreds of thousands of people were vaccinated. Millions of people were vaccinated. And associated with that, uh, you saw that that 30% number of people who said they would get a vaccine went up to 65 or 70% said they would get a vaccine. That, to me, is a skeptic. And I think it's good to be a skeptic. I think you should be skeptical of anything you put into your body. But now what you have is you have more than a billion doses of vaccine that have been out there. This, these vaccines stand on a, a, a very high platform of safety and efficacy. They're not absolutely safe. Nothing is absolutely safe, but certainly their benefits clearly and definitively outweigh what are very, very rare risks. And yet still, there are people who are choosing not to get it. That, that's really not hesitancy anymore. I think at that point, you're at scientific denialism or vaccine denialism. And there it becomes very hard to convince people because if, if data aren't convincing you, you're in trouble. There's an old quote by uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson who says, if people don't use reason or logic to reach a certain conclusion, then reason or logic isn't going to talk them out of it. And I think that's where we are now, hence mandates. And that's where mandates come in. Yeah. And of course, that's a controversial topic in its own right. But uh, sticking with this conversation about risk and how we talk about risk, you know, I, th I found this book uh, really refreshing in a number of ways, because I, I do feel like at this moment in time, it can be very tempting to take a very absolutist position on vaccines. Uh, you know, the, the vaccine skeptics will say that they're extremely risky and dangerous, whereas vaccine supporters will say, no, 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 there's actually zero risk associated with vaccines. And the truth is that vaccines do carry a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of risk for certain conditions. Uh, but that risk is absolutely eclipsed by the much larger risks from COVID-19 itself. And I think that your book is offering that more complete way of thinking about risk and these problems. And, you know, you could say that that's something of a subtle distinction because you end on the same conclusion either way. Vaccines are the best way that we know to deal with the risks of COVID-19. But I, I, I just feel like offering that more complete picture to folks that are trying to navigate all this is important. Right. I think we're terrible at assigning risk, terrible at assigning relative risk. I, I think when people ask me what's the most dangerous aspects of getting vaccines, I say driving to the office to get them. Statistically, hmm. that puts you at greatest risk. Um, and I think if you look here, for example, what did we learn as the mRNA vaccines rolled out into millions of people? We learned that they were a rare cause of myocarditis, which is inflammation of the, of the heart muscle, not a trivial issue. It was rare, about one in 40,000, but it was real. What we also learned as we looked closer at, at uh, people who had COVID, including uh, sort of uh, older adolescents and younger adults, is that about one in 45 people who are infected with, with SARS-CoV-2 who have COVID also develop myocarditis. So, so in one case, the risk from the vaccine is one in 40,000. The risk from the, from the disease is about one in 45. But, you know, people don't see it that way. They tend to take to view as more uh, awful something that you choose to do to yourself, for example, getting a vaccine, than, than if you just sort of allow it to be done. In this case, you know, um, risking getting the infection. I think we all generally think of ourselves as invulnerable, that it's never going to happen to us. 
I, I think one of the, the lessons for me in dealing with um, these, these um, parent activist groups, and I'm talking about groups like Families Fighting Flu, Meningitis Angels, National Meningitis Association, all those parents tell the same story. I can't believe this happened to me. And then they become vigorous activists to educate about the disease and the vaccine. I think we think of ourselves as invulnerable because it's frankly the only way we can get through life. Yeah. But you know, this, this virus is... Uh, is pretty common. There's a, one, a researcher at NIH who said a few months ago something that I think is true. He said, over the next few years, you're going to have two choices, which is to get vaccinated or get naturally infected. And uh, natural infection is not the better choice. All right. Well, uh, some sobering thoughts right there. We only have a couple of minutes left in the conversation, but want to end things out maybe on a little bit more of a forward-looking perspective, because uh, at the very beginning of your book, you actually list out a number of medical innovations that are right now on the horizon. And I was uh, pretty surprised to hear about some of these. They're not on my radar at all. I wonder if they're on uh, the radar of any of our listeners. You know, you were talking about uh, the introduction of perhaps artificial blood, uh, new applications of gene editing uh, with CRISPR, uh, genetically modified animal parts, which we've discussed a little bit earlier in the program, uh, the programming of the immune system to fight cancer. So all kinds of stuff that uh, really are going to potentially be game changers in a lot of these domains. Wondering if you could speak a little bit more about the promises and perils that we could be facing as those various medical innovations come online. I mean, have we gotten better at mitigating the risks of new medical innovations or are we likely to see a similar story play out that you've been describing so far? I think we always learn as we go. I, I think the CRISPR technology, yeah. which is a gene editing technology, is a great example. If you take someone, for example, who has sickle cell disease, which is a single gene defect, therefore what you can do is you can take the bone marrow cells from people with sickle cell disease, genetically modify them so that now those people can make the normal hemoglobin that sits in, in the middle of red cells as distinct from the abnormal hemoglobin, which they're currently making. You can do that. Now, typically people with sickle cell disease live about 40 years or so, and their life is just littered with the tragedy of constantly being admitted to the hospital with these painful crises when those sickled blood cells sort of get stuck in capillaries and cause an enormous amount of pain. Many people are opioid uh, addicts because of because of that painful crisis. So, so you could do that. Now, there was just a woman who, who I think now is two years after having that done. And instead of having five to seven hospital admissions every year for these painful crises, so-called vaso-occlusive crises, she's had none. So it's great. Two years, she's, she's pain-free. She has more normal hemoglobin in her bloodstream because of that gene editing technology. But you sort of always hold your breath and you're always taking a little bit of risk. Do you want to trade in You know what now is, is at least a known 40-year lifespan for potentially a longer lifespan, 60, 70, 80 years, or as we learn something about CRISPR, we don't know yet, um, find that, that uh, you may have shortened your life. So, I mean, I give her credit for, for, for being one of the first to step up to do this. You can make the same case for cystic fibrosis, which is also a single gene disease, which also could be ameliorated by this CRISPR technology. This is, this is going to be interesting to see how this plays out over the next five, 10 years. So I guess the question that we all need to be asking ourselves at this point is, uh, are we feeling lucky? Uh, Paul Offit, are, are, are you feeling like we should be feeling lucky about uh, the future of the next couple of years in medical innovation on balance? Yeah, well, first of all, I always appreciate the Dirty Harry reference. Thank you. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I am. I mean, I, I, I really um, am enamored by the scientific endeavor. What I like about scientists is they're open-minded. They're circumspect. You know, they're willing to take textbooks and throw them over their shoulder in a backward, without a backward glance as we learn more and more. So that that's what it is that I love about science. And I just am trying to get... Um, 
the general population to love it also, but to realize that the, the process often involves learning new things. Occasionally you see Dr. Fauci, who's, who thank goodness we have Dr. Fauci, gets, Dr. Fauci gets kind of uh, put on the, 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 uh, the fire at, at, in front of these congressional meetings because he said something at one point and then had to modify it based on new data. And he always says the same thing. Look, we learn as we go. Um, we learn, we have new data here, therefore we have new recommendations. And I just find he, he struggles getting Congress people to believe that. And it's, it's uh, too bad. So that's put in a sense the purpose of this book. We do learn as we go. That's always been true. All right. Important reminder and uh, important way of living for all of us learners out there. Uh, we have been speaking so far to Paul Offit. He, once again, is uh, with the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. His new book is You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccination, The Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. Paul Offit, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 